Today we're talking about California's CO2 regulations and automotive manufacturing. This is AutoLine. We've got a great show today on two different topics. First up, we'll be taking a deep dive into the regulations for limiting carbon dioxide emissions that California has enacted. It took a major legal fight for the state to get the go-ahead to enact those rules for cars, but it sure looks like California is going to get its way. And by the way, there may be as many as 16 other states that are chomping at the bit to adopt the same standards. Together, they account for almost half of all new car sales, so that could become the de facto standard for the industry. To get to the bottom of what this all means for the auto industry, my first guest will be Tom Kaket, the Deputy Director of the California Air Resources Board, who has some eye-opening things to say about those regulations. We'll be bringing him into the studio via Skype for a two-way webcam conversation. Then, after that, I'll have Jim Harbour here in the studio. Jim is the creator of the Harbor Report that compares the manufacturing productivity of most of the different automakers building vehicles in North America. But he's also come out with a book on his career, and we'll be talking about that as well as his outlook on the industry. So stay right where you are. We'll be back right after this. From our studios in the Motor City, this is AutoLine. Here now is John McElroy. I'm talking right now with Tom Kaket, the Chief Deputy Executive Officer for the California Air Resources Board. Tom, great to have you here on AutoLine with us. Thanks a lot, John. Well, let's talk about the, state, the state's CO2 legislation as it impacts automobiles, because of course, being an automotive show, that's what we want to talk about. What exactly are the requirements? I, I mean, I, if I read right, you have to have a fleet average of 35 miles per gallon uh, by when? Let's pick it up from there. Okay, well, first of all, the standards are actually expressed as carbon dioxide emissions. They're not fuel economy uh, standards. And what we've set in place is a uh, set of emission standards that gets progressively more stringent beginning in 2009 and ending in 2016. And by 2016, there'll be about a 30% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. Now, since there's some relationship between CO2 and miles per gallon, it will result in a number that is on the order in 2016 of about 34 miles per gallon. Now, I've heard that that actually translates into about 43 miles per gallon for cars and 26 miles per gallon for trucks. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, there's a different standard for cars from the heavier trucks, and we did that in order to preserve the availability of heavy trucks, uh, SUVs and pickup trucks, work trucks, things like that, uh, in the marketplace. So we regulate them separately, and uh, the numbers that you gave are about the correct number when averaged together as a fleet, given that uh, the mix is something like 60% cars, 40% trucks right now. Uh, that gives you the uh, numbers that I I provided. Tom, I know that you're expressing this in, uh, in CO2, but, and, and you say there's a relationship. My understanding, and I'm not an engineer, I'm not an environmentalist, I'm not an expert on this, is that's the only correlation that we know of how to reduce CO2 is by increasing fuel economy. Is, is there any other way of doing it? 
Well, it doesn't always work uh, in a one-to-one relationship. Let me give you a, a simple example. For example, uh, a diesel engine in a passenger car or, or SUV can provide about 35% improvement in fuel economy, but it only provides a 20% reduction in CO2 emissions. If I did that same number for a gasoline car, the numbers would be very similar, 35% better fuel economy, 35% better CO2. The reason is is that the fuel has a lot more carbon in it, in diesel fuel, and that's what produces the CO2. Same thing's true when you use ethanol, it's a different relationship, and there are more than just CO2 emissions involved here. There's, for example, air conditioner fluid emissions, which either leak out, and uh, uh, in that case, those uh, emissions, which are very potent greenhouse gases, uh, can affect CO2, but they wouldn't affect fuel economy. You made a great point about the fuel. Is there any provision in the California legislation to introduce more low-carbon fuel and maybe not put the onus on the back of the car companies for, our, for achieving all this? Yes, there is. There's a complementary program called the Low Carbon Fuel Standard, and the idea is very similar to the greenhouse gas tailpipe emission standards in that over time, there would be an increasingly stringent requirement to reduce the amount of carbon that is in gasoline and the amount of carbon that is in diesel fuel, and this will help the uh, auto manufacturers uh, as well as achieving greater greenhouse gas emissions than by addressing just the car alone. On the horizon here, what are the means by which you can reduce the carbon in fuel? To achieve uh, really low carbon fuel, we're going to have to move away from petroleum. Uh, and that's uh, most likely done by either biofuels, electricity, or hydrogen. And the electricity and the hydrogen needs to be made in a way that is low carbon as well. So we can't just use electricity to make hydrogen. We have to use renewable electricity, or we have to use other processes that have a very low carbon footprint. That's it, what will be necessary. And how about the short term, up through 2020 then? Well, through 2020, uh, the standard could be met uh, a number of ways, the low-carbon fuel standard, that is, and it could be met by the introduction of uh, uh, certain kinds of ethanol, for example, blended into the fuel, and also to use the capability of the E85 flexible fuel vehicles that the domestic automobile manufacturers have been making in large numbers for a long time. In California here, we have 400,000 of them on the road today, and if a substantial portion of them could use E85 or ethanol 85, which is derived in a reasonably uh, good way from a carbon standpoint, then that would help meet the standard. Sounds like you're talking cellulosic ethanol at that point then. Well, it can be cellulosic. Uh, it can be uh, corn ethanol that's made in a very much more efficient way than the typical corn ethanol plant in the Midwest t today. And uh, it could also be imported ethanol made in a more efficient way, such as uh, sugarcane ethanol. Mm -hmm. Do you have to coordinate with the EPA vis-a-vis -vis CAFE on your CO2 legislation, or, or does it not matter? No, it does matter very much. In fact, uh, under the Bush administration, the program that we have developed for the tailpipe standards uh, was denied a waiver. That's basically uh, bureau speak for the fact that uh, EPA has to buy off on what we do. But with um, President Obama being elected, uh, he's taken a new, fresh look at that, and we hope to have an answer, which we hope will be positive from our viewpoint by June of this year. Once that's done on the tailpipe side, uh, there won't be any other federal restrictions, at least, to moving forward. The fuel standard can be implemented without uh, EPA approval. But there is the 
very important point of how do we coordinate the California program, which has now been adopted by 13 other states, representing about 40% of the cars produced in the United States, with the fuel economy standards that have been partially implemented by the uh, DOT or Department of Transportation folks and with uh, the potential that EPA will do greenhouse gas standards on cars as well. So you have the possibility of three different programs and it just screams out for coordination and making sure that these all work in the same way in a complementary way. Uh, my understanding of the bill is that it exempts any automaker that sells fewer than 60,000 vehicles a year in California, uh, which on the face of it would seem that this would only apply to the six largest automakers, GM, Ford, Chrysler, Toyota, Honda, Nissan. Is that right? Does everybody else walk uh, scot-free away from this? No, they don't. Uh, it doesn't exempt them per se. It gives them the smaller manufacturers more time to comply. So they don't have to fully comply until 2016 whereas the larger manufacturers have to start in 2009. But uh, surprisingly, with uh, sales being determined in 06, 07, and 08, the number of manufacturers is now nine that are in the category of over 60,000 sales in California. Mm -hmm. And then those, those uh, manufacturers then also have to produce in the other 13 states. The 60,000 only applies to California. Gotcha. Uh, some automakers, uh, notably the guys here in town in Detroit, have said they think they might have to limit sales of their light trucks and uh, uh, SUVs in California or the other states that adopt this because they, they don't see where they're going to hit that average 26 miles per gallon. What's, what's your read on that? We don't believe that's true. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, rhetoric and perhaps uh, political lobbying around that point. But in fact, uh, the manufacturers look to us like they're in compliance already for the first two years. That's in part because they've been developing better cars and in part due to the uh, consumer shift towards purchasing perhaps lighter cars. But without downsizing cars, without reducing their weight, the technologies to comply with these standards given that they've had since 2004 to begin development uh, are, are clear. They're there, they're in the marketplace today in some models, they can be applied to more models and compliance to us is a straightforward, uh, a straightforward challenge that can be done. But uh, 2016 averaging 26 miles per gallon for light duty trucks seems like a really tall order to me in the sense that no truck today even comes close to that standard. Well, one, you have to uh, recognize that we, those numbers are based on the EPA test procedures before they're discounted to the label value. And since that discount is over 20%, when you say 26 mile per gallon truck, that's something like a 21 or 2 mile per gallon truck, as you would see on the label. And there are, there are vehicles today that come close or actually meet the 2016 standards. Not a lot of them, but, uh, but some of them. And the number is growing rapidly. Tom, go through that a little bit more, because that, that's a revelation to me. I haven't heard that. You're saying that what is on a truck label from the EPA now at 21 miles per gallon by year factoring would actually be more like 26? Right, uh, EPA has recently revised, I think for the second time, the label values so that they match the way that consumers actually drive the vehicles and the label is now supposed to match what you actually get on the road, at least for an average person. And that discount between the actual test procedure that is used to derive the the miles per gallon, which by the way are derived from CO2 emission measurement, and uh, the 
what you actually get on the road is on the order of uh, 20%. It varies by the highway versus the uh, the city value, but it's on, on that order. So if you have a 26 mile per gallon uh, vehicle, you would expect that it's real, uh, for our compliance, you would expect this real fuel economy would be about five miles per gallon less. That's a significant thing that I was not aware of. That, that really changes the whole nature of trucks being able to beat that standard. And even for the 43 mile per gallon car standard, uh, you know, 20% of 43 is about eight miles per gallon less, so that makes it more like 35 on the city test. Gotcha. gotcha. And so there are cars out there that are coming close to that now. Tom, will this really truly reduce CO2 in California? I mean, it's, it's a big atmosphere on planet Earth and winds are blowing in and all that. Are you really going to reduce CO2 in California with this? Well, we're not trying to really do that. Our, our objective is to see a national and eventually an international uh, standard that would reflect the kind of CO2 reductions that we believe are feasible. And so our position has been, we'll do it in California as a leadership position and we'll implement it if necessary. Uh, we found 13 other states that wanted to join us. We're 40% of the, the nation's sales of vehicles and we're actively working uh, to see if we can get the Congress and the US EPA to adopt our standards at a national level. And since uh, some other com countries already have more stringent standards, namely China, Japan, and Europe, uh, we would be joining those countries then to make up a significant portion of the vehicles sold in the world. And we think that that kind of leadership will, will lead forward to uh, a, a way of reducing uh, global emissions for a global problem. Of course, as you know, in Europe, for example, right now, I think it's more like $6 a gallon for fuel. Here we're nationwide an average of about $2 a gallon. Doesn't that concern you in terms of this nation being able to achieve levels of CO2 reduction, say, that Europe has? Well, it, it might concern some people, but it doesn't concern us so much because, in fact, uh, this is an economically smart thing to do. The fuel savings that go along with these greenhouse gas standards pay back the higher sticker price on the car for putting the technologies on in just a matter of a few years. At $4 a gallon, it paid back in two years. At $2 a gallon, it pays back in about four years. And so the consumer, even the first buyer, is getting money put back in their pockets by buying these, these vehicles. And then the subsequent owners achieve benefits as well. And so, you know, this is just sort of a common sense approach. Let's make vehicles more efficient it saves fuel, it saves on imported gasoline from foreign countries that are not our friends, and it puts money back in the pockets of the consumer. Other than the, the very real challenge of the vehicle manufacturers uh, producing these vehicles using the newer technologies, this is something that just common sense needs to be done. It needs to be done in California, it needs to be done in the nation, it needs to be done in the world. Well, real good. Tom Kakett, Chief Deputy Executive Officer for the California Air Resources Board. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me about this today. I enjoyed it, John. Thanks. Well, as you can tell, we brought Tom Kakett in via Skype, but now we're going to switch back to the studio here, where I recently had Jim Harbour come in to talk about his career in the auto industry and what he sees going on there now. Joining me right now, Jim Harbour, the, the author, the creator of The Harbour Report, one of the, the best, maybe the best manufacturing consultant this business has ever seen. Great to have you here on AutoLine. Thank you, John. It's great to be here. One of the reasons we asked Jim today is uh, he's just come out with a book. Factory Man is the name of it. It's a pretty interesting read of 
your time in this automotive industry. What, what led you to write the book? What led me to write this book, John, is I am sitting here just sick of the world. That's we're allowing our whole industrial base that will evaporate completely. And it's, it's just, I've watched 60 years of being in manufacturing and now all of a sudden nobody seems to care about manufacturing. The things that I think created the wealth in this country and above all, it created the middle class. You've been really after the American auto industry for 30 years now, uh, independently, to really try to get its act together when it comes to a manufacturing environment. How would you grade them right now? Where, where do you think GM, Ford, and Chrysler stand from a manufacturing standpoint? Well, let me put it in two phases, and it's, it's about two things. It's about quality, and it's about productivity, and it's about making a great vehicle. Uh, from the 1980s, when we really did make junk, I mean, we, we would ship a car with seven or eight defects. And uh, we didn't worry if the dealer could fix them. We only worried that he could even find them, okay? Today, it's a completely different story. The quality of the products coming out of the big three today are equivalent to, or in some cases, better than. Uh, you just saw that Buick just won its uh, long-term award for three years of the best reliability in the industry. And tag, I think they tied with Jaguar. Right. But ahead of Lexus and a lot of other people like Toyota, Nissan, and Honda. As far as productivity goes, from 1980, the world has changed. We're in a different, completely different planet now. Uh, the last Harbor Report, which my son now makes for Oliver Wyman, uh, when you looked at car assembly plants, six of the top ten plants were big three from Detroit. Nine of the top ten truck plants were from the big three in Detroit. So it's a completely different world than it was. But if they solved their manufacturing problems in, in, in your book now, I mean, because you're right, the, the quality numbers look really good and the productivity numbers look really good, at least for some brands and some plants. But overall, have they really got their act together? Overall, in manufacturing, they have their act together. And a lot of that is being done because they're taking a completely different focus. For example, they're now commonizing body architecture on how you put a body together. We don't have the three different ways. The old days there were things like BOC and CPC and truck and bus at GM, and we all were unique. I had my type of body shop design, you had yours, and we couldn't build each other's cars. Today that's all changing. We're all, you, company by company, we're commonizing body architecture. But in addition to that, we're now commonizing platforms. If you look at the old Ford, still today, they have four focus platforms around the world, three Fiesta platforms, seven. None of the components are common. But if you looked at a Toyota and he had a Corolla, he's sitting there making 1.2 million Corollas around the world and they're all alike. Except you got a three and five door and I got a two and four door. So we're starting to modernize or look at how our product development goes. And when you commonize platforms and architecture, you now have flexibility in assembly plants to build other, more than one platform per vehicle and many models. So why is it then, you know, as you're saying, productivity-wise, they got their act together. Uh, Quality-wise, they got their act together. There's, there's some of this variation, but in a couple of years' time, 
uh, you know, Ford, for your example, will, will have common platforms around the world. But yet there's this perception in this country that they don't have their act together when it comes to manufacturing. Right. Well, there's still a perception, regardless of what the cause is, there's still a perception that this industry is making junk. And the byproduct of this industry making, thinking we're making junk is the big three, Detroit big three, have been putting about two or $3,000 extra on the hood of the car to close the sale. Big numbers. What that means, when we were making 10 million units here a couple of years ago, the Detroit three, you're giving away $30 billion a year, 15 billion at GM and about eight or nine at Ford and the rest at Chrysler. All in sales incentives. All in sales incentives because nobody believes we're making high quality vehicles. They all think we're making that 1976 Velari and they're madder than hell about it. Yeah, so where do you think manufacturing goes from here? U.S.-based manufacturing. As, as you, what's your crystal ball tell you about where manufacturing, automotive manufacturing in the U.S. is going? Well, understand the big, the Detroit Three today, and this is true of all the manufacturers. They only assemble vehicles today, and they make transmissions, engines, and make body stampings. The rest we depend on all the tier one, two, and three suppliers. Uh, to that extent. All these three manufacturers have really turned these factories into gold mines. Once you get common platforms, common body architecture, and flexibility, if volume comes back from this 10 million level, maybe it goes to 15 million, you're gonna have three companies minting money because they have all the things they've had to do from product engineering and manufacturing are now in place. So what's the hold, uh, future hold for Jim Harbor? It seems like you can't get away from this business. You got gasoline in your veins. It, it seems like it. you can't get away from it. Yeah, I'm an old man, John. I'm, uh, I still devour every piece of information on this industry and others. Uh, I want these things to, be, to come out of the woodwork and really be great companies again. You know, there's a lot of other great companies in this United States, but nobody seems to recognize them. Uh, you look at Caterpillar, who's a class company, John Deere, Intel Corporation, uh, the motorcycle manufacturer out Harley here, Davidson. Harley Davidson. It, but it seems to me in this world, and I, this is what disgusts me, is nobody cares about manufacturing anymore. We've just, if you're in Europe, they love it, and Korea, and Japan, and China. But if you're in Washington or Wall Street, they're just willing to write it off. And these are the people that created the middle class. These are the people who are the middle class. These are the people who created wealth. Yet nobody seems to want them. We just, we want to look at all the banks and make sure there's something. But banks don't create wealth and they don't create jobs and they don't create a middle class. I couldn't agree with you more, and uh, I'd love to see uh, manufacturing get turned around. I don't know anybody who's done more to get manufacturing turned around in the United States than you have. But Jim Harbour, thanks so much for coming back on AutoLine here, folks. It's, it's called Factory Man. Check out this book. If you want to learn a whole lot more about manufacturing, this book's got it. Glad to be thanks, here, Jim. Jim. Thank yeah. you. Thanks for watching today's show, and join me again next week when my guest will be Jim Dollinger, 
who's been one of the harshest critics of General Motors, but who is also the best salesman that GM has. Dollinger has sold more Buicks than anyone else, and he's been shouting from the rooftops that GM doesn't have a product problem. He says it has a sales and marketing problem. In fact, he's developed a plan that he calls Return to Greatness that he says could quickly put GM back on its feet. He's controversial and opinionated, but I think you're going to find this to be a fascinating discussion. And hey, don't forget, if you'd like to learn more about the auto industry on a daily basis, check out our webcast at AutolineDaily.com. News, product, and technology, we get into it all. Anyway, that wraps up today's show. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next week.